The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Two men with identities forged in the white-hot fires of the 90s comic book boom, now ready to re-examine the era where heroes became extreme and what magazine gave rise to a market of speculation. If you've got the guts, prepare to enter the world of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. Greetings, geeks, and welcome to episode 82 of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics, the podcast where we re-examine the 90s comic book boom through the pages of Wizard Magazine. Wondering what Eric Larson's The Savage Dragon comic would have looked like if it were drawn by Gary Larson, creator of The Far Side. I'm Adam. I'm Michael. We have a special guest with us, but let me tell you a little bit about him. Uh, He is a man who has seen the comic book industry from the fan and retailer perspective for decades. A man who lit up your television screens for seven seasons on the very popular AMC series, Comic Book Men. Of course, he's also a fellow podcaster, manager of Jay and Silent Bob's Secret Stash. Mike Zapsick is here. Mike, how you doing? What's happening? Howdy, everybody out there in wizard podcast land. First, you know, um, Mike, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast oh, and course. i was in the secret stash uh, maybe about a month or two ago because i was going to see a show at count basie that night and my buddy pete and i went in there and we just started chatting about wizard and mike was like let's do a crossover and i said that sounds great this is like a lifelong dream for me here this is amazing <laughs> i literally watched every single episode of comic book men like when they aired that's and i was a huge fan of the show but you're and- the bastard that did that okay i got it. <laughs> I was that guy. Yes. hundred percent. I was like, wow, he wants to hang out with us and chat with us. That's pretty cool. You guys are cool. And what do you recall about that conversation that got you here today? It was so weird because we were talking about 80s, 90s, you know, the comic books we grew up on. And he was asking me from a retailer's perspective. And he's like, do you miss the Wizard Magazine? And I said, I loved Wizard Magazine. I was a huge fan of, as a matter of fact, I can say Wizard Magazine was responsible for my wife and I meeting. Whoa. Yeah, it's really cool. I was at a thing and I I was bored to tears and I'm reading a wizard magazine and this very attractive woman I hear from behind me says, oh, is that wizard? What do you read? And I looked over at her and I'm like, "Um, I read pretty much everything. Are, Are you a collector? And she like rattled off some not crap that you can, you know, like, oh, I read Archie. You know, she was like, not Sandman the Dreaming and some really, really specific titles. So I was like, please sit down, young lady. And it went from there. So because of Wizard the Magazine, I, you know, had my wife come up to me. That is amazing. Wow. That's that's one of those stories you don't hear very often. That is for sure. No. <laughs> Now, I'm curious for you, you you were talking about, you know, with Michael, talking about the 80s and the comics you grew up with. What was your start of your comic fandom? What is your origin story? I cannot remember a time in my life when I didn't have comics in it. I'm the youngest of six boys. So I had five older brothers 
And my brother, Dave, he borrowed a stack of comics from a friend of his. And I couldn't even read them. And I learned to read very early because of comics. But I must have been like three. And I saw this big stack of, we had Batman back in the day, the, the Adam West Batman. And every once in a while, Spider-Man, the, the 1967 Spider-Man cartoon, you know, or his webs didn't quite go all the way down. His webs hadn't dropped yet. So there you go. <laughs> and uh, so I'm looking through this thing. And I'm three years old, mind you, grabbed a, a pair of my mother's, those really big scissors. You know, it, they almost look like scissors you could open a shopping center with. You know, cut yeah. the ribbon. So I'm I'm sitting there and I'm cutting things out, panels that I like. That I'm like, this is really cool. Mostly Jack Kirby, but I'm sitting and my brother's like, oh my god, what the hell are you doing? He's like pushing me around, and you know, shouldn't push a kid with really large scissors. I didn't stab him or anything, but uh, ruined this stack of comics. And I find out later that they weren't his. He borrowed them from a friend of his. So my father had to make sure that this kid got his money for all of those comic books. Mostly Iron Man's, many Avengers, some Captain America's, and uh, right now probably worth like tens of thousands of dollars. Yeah, so. I got I got to ask you this. I'm a big thrift store guy. I'd love you know search and find some treasures. And I, I picked up some like X Men trades and other books over the years at a thrift store. And when I've gotten them, I've opened them, and people have cut out panels. They've cut out characters. When you're getting somebody's collection, have you ever come across that in any great number where people have actually cut things out of the comics? Nah, not really. But I know I, I can't. I don't know why it keeps happening to me. I'm like <laughs> it's like two there different was stores. This really it's weird phenomenon. Phenomenon for about a year, I was getting all these books with tears in them. Like really, it, it was weird. Like almost perfectly down the center, a tear. Or at the top, a tear. And it's way back when, before we knew what autism or Asperger's was, you know, people would mark their books that way. People with Asperger's. And a lot of us comic collectors were somewhere on the spectrum. I mean, why the hell wouldn't we be? We're, we're pretty awesome. So they, they'd mark that. And I've, I've gotten like full collections. I'm like, this could be a $10,000 collection, except for these little tears on there. And they're like, son of a bitch. And then there's one guy who actually came in with an entire run of 1970 Superman and action comics, where he put long sideburns on Superman. <laughs> so I was Just like, drew it in with a marker, yeah. huh? Yeah, I'm like, well, that's pretty interesting. I'll give you a dollar for him. He's like, sold. I'll take the dollar. <laughs> that's amazing. Now, I got to ask, though, when did you get into comic book retail then? Were you there in the 90s or were you there before? Like, when did that start for you? No, I didn't start in retail. I, I had a career before this. I was actually a trained chef. Oh. So, uh, yeah. And my wife and I, we had just gotten married and we decided that I should go back to school. And if we're going to have a family, she wants a husband who's going to be there to raise the children, not just conceive, but raise them. So I was like, all right, good enough. And chefs notoriously do not get weekends or holidays off. So uh, I went back to, to college and I was a reservist at Jay and Silent Bob's Secret Stash. And Wolf Lanigan needed a guy to come in two days out of the month. And I parlayed that into a full-time gig. So I don't know how that happened, but it just did. That's awesome. So the thing I want to ask then for you is, you know, we're talking about this love story that blossomed because of Wizard Magazine. But what were you in love with about Wizard Magazine when you would read it? What would get you excited? What was the difference between Wizard and any other comics publication in your mind? 
this was much more professionally produced. I mean, I loved comic scene. Comic scene was like one of the first fanzines that I'd ever read. It became mainstream because you couldn't find anything, you know, t- talking about comics back in the day. There was like a comic buyer's guide, I think, but that was more of like a, a periodical, it was a newspaper, almost like a tabloid and very oddly put together. It, it sort of felt like the Daily Planet. And you're like, no wonder no one reads your column, Clark Kent. But this was slick looking and there was in-depth reporting and it it spoke in our words, you know, like our nerdy terms. So it was it was actually really cool. So, you know, Mike, one of the biggest questions that I have for you, what were some of the, the comics you were reading in the 90s? What was the books that you were drawn to picking up and checking out? I've always been a Superman guy. So Superman was really cool. I loved Nightwing. I'm I'm an old New Teen Titans fan. Mm-hmm. George, George Perez. I mean, he he and Marv Wolfman. I'm one of those guys who never thought that you should have limited yourself when you're a kid. Like, oh, I'm a Marvel zombie. Mm-hmm. You know, I was both. And I, I even read Charlton comics. I swear to you, I don't spread that around, but I did. Because, um, <laughs> I mean, I'll be getting dirty looks down, like walking out straight now. Like, read charlton comics but i was kind of the same way i i mixed and matched i was reading spider-man and captain america and batman and superman i didn't care i was like oh it was just my heroes i had to read them exactly and superman was back in the 90s i mean he had a weekly title yeah you can say it wasn't you know it's like oh no that's superman man of tomorrow that's superman man of steel no they were all interconnected yeah and you had to read them you know, in a specific order. And if you didn't, you were screwed. Mm-hmm. You you couldn't follow what was going on. It's like Lex Luthor did what? Oh my God. And you know, the thing about those weekly comics, I'm sure they were getting a lot of mail into the DC offices. You know, people want to share their opinions. They want to make it known in the letters column. Some of them were ringers. Uh, but hey, we want to check out all the mail that was coming into Wizards. So we're going to open up Willie Lumpkin's Mailbag. All right, so our first letter here, Peter Ryan of Whittier, California, he prophetically declares that comics should be treated like legitimate literature. Dear Wizard, I'm a bit perturbed by the fact that public libraries ignore comic books. Most libraries now have audio and videotapes, magazines, and computer software that people can check out. Why is it that graphic novels seem to be left out of the library modernization? At the least, libraries should stock some of comics more literary works like Sandman or The Dark Knight Returns. A few years ago, I put a letter in the suggestion box of my local library asking that they add a comic book section. I accomplished a smaller step. They ordered hardcover copies of Understanding Comics and Mouse. It wasn't much of a hassle for them. All the library needed to know was that someone was interested in this type of thing. Could you please print this letter so that people know this is possible? If just 1% of your readership contacted their local libraries to get comics, it'd be a massive step in the right direction. Now, it's crazy to think of a time when comics were not in the library because you go now and they got like full sections like you got bone you got everything else at the local library but here still in 1998 that was not a thing you know back then you might have seen watchmen on the shelves but you're right now because of the conventions having comic books in a, in the library is similar to like going into Barnes and Noble now and seeing them with my book which is still kind of cool i wouldn't go there i'd rather, rather go to a comic shop but hey that's just me <laughs> I gotcha. And they got really, really small at Barnes and Noble, but it's all yeah. manga. 
It's all manga now. Yeah, it's all manga. Yeah, it's crazy. Just as far as Jim McLaughlin's response, he says, hey, now there's a damn good idea. Want to read comics for free? Have your library get some. It's worth a try. It's easy to do, hygienically safe, and it costs you nothing. So do it today. You'll be glad you did. But now that we know that that campaign went so well, we were able to actually accomplish getting graphic novels into the library. Michael, I think it's time that you give us the headlines with... I'm I'm semi-embarrassed now. I love it. Our top story this issue is Shaking Up Spidey provides more details on the cancellation of Spider-Man titles and teases just how different the Spidey universe will be soon. As veteran Marvel editor Ralph Macchio declares, the entire Spider-Man saga will end in September. In the meantime, a 13-issue miniseries. That's not really a miniseries. I hate I know, it. that, they call that a maxi-series. It's a maxi-series. It's not yeah. a miniseries. Six issues short by John Byrne is being referred to at this time as Spider-Man Twice Told Tales and will launch in October, which tells a slightly updated version of Spider-Man's early years. Additionally, John Byrne was slated to pencil The Amazing Spider-Man with Howard Mackey writing, he explains, I suggested I write one of the main books as well as Twice Told Tales, and Marvel had a great idea to have both the Spider-Man books have one single voice and one single writer. So I suggested I could pencil one of the books, and they agreed. That means that Peter Parker Spider-Man would also be written by Howard Mackey and that John Romita Jr., would continue penciling. It's reported that Sensational Spider-Man was being canceled while Spectacular Spider-Man was becoming a title where a rotating group of creative teams would come in for short story arcs set in different uh, time periods of Spider-Man's history. So, Mike, what was your opinion of like the different Spider-Man books in the 90s? Because there was so many of them. Oh, yeah. Like we were talking about Superman, you know, you had to read them in a specific order. And if you didn't, again, screwed. And I remember when this happened and people were like, hey, John Burns, our go-to guy, you know, revamping and retelling origin stories. And realize this, this is 1998, correct? Yeah. So 98, they do this. Essentially, he went shot for shot, like panel for panel mm-hmm. of origin story. And it was Spider-Man chapter one, that's what this became. I love John Byrne. I think that he's fantastic. I think he's underutilized. Well, right now he's underutilized. Back in the day, he was a machine. Back yeah. in the 70s, holy crap, he was doing like three titles a month. And it, it was insane. But they went to him, hey, revamp this. And 1998, people were like, that's not my Peter Parker, blah, blah, blah. And two years later, you would have uh, Brian Michael Bendis going yeah. and doing Ultimate Spider-Man, which did the same thing, but nobody was like bitching about it. Mainly because he wrote dialogue sort of the way people spoke. Yeah. You no know, stammering, stuttering, you know, hey, wait, hey, 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 you... <laughs> <laughs> like, all right, that's. I just read that out of a Brian Michael Bendis comic book. So it's true. That's 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 how he wrote, especially you know in that like young Peter Parker voice kind of thing for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and I will say, so I, in preparation for this, I'm sure it's going to be covered in more detailed later issues, but I read through like the final issues leading up to this. And then these new number ones that they launched at this time. And yeah, it it is really strange. The one thing I will say, so spoiler, Peter Parker gives up being Spider-Man and says, okay, I'm just going to be with Mary Jane and Aunt May is still alive. Huh? And then, you know, they're just going to have their life together. But then there's a new Spider-Man who fills in. And that's the mystery of this new series is, 
who is this replacement Spider-Man that Peter knows nothing about? And that's what I'm curious to find out because I haven't read ahead to get that reveal just yet. Oh, wow. Okay. Wow. You're not going to be terribly pleased. (laughs) That's, that's. It, yeah, no, it's no. not I, good. I remember right. this one. It's not good. I, I should give you my cell phone number just to hear you like <laughs> call me like four in the morning, being like, <laughs> "Comics suck." Yeah. <laughs> the only hit right now is Peter says at one point, "It looks like he's flying more than jumping." So that's like one little clue. I don't know if that actually plays out or not, but we'll see. It does, but not in the way you think. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Well, let's move on to something else here that was changing up because, guys, you knew it couldn't last. Awesome Suspense Titles reports that after a heavy promotion in the pages of Wizard and elsewhere for the last six months, Rob Liefeld's Awesome Entertainment has lost its financial backing from Crossroads Communications, and as a result, Alan Moore's Youngblood and Supreme Titles are being cancelled, along with Jeff Matsuda's Kaboom. Additionally, Alex Ross, Ed McGinnis, Brandon Peterson, Steve Scroach, and Jim Starlin have all been released from their contract with the publisher. And remember guys, this is after we just did this big article in Wizard where Liefeld and Loeb convinced all these pros to jump ship from Marvel, Top Cow, all these other projects. Now only The Coven by Jeff Loeb and Ian Churchill will continue publication while a planned series called Menace written by actress Jada Pinkett will remain in pre-production. Keep a damn name out your damn mouth. (laughs) (laughs) And Rob's own new project, Rejects? Regex? How are you supposed to read this? It's going to premiere at Wizard World Chicago. This is how Rob explains the reason why his book will continue. Quote, I'm the company president, so I can set rates and make myself the least expensive penciler on the planet. Rob then declares cryptically, quote, I still believe in the comic marketplace. This is only half a picture. You'll have the full story soon. Just for the record, Rob Liefeld hates us, but he like blocked us on social media. It comes with the territory of covering Wizard Magazine because he hates them so much. I've had a couple of Really nice encounters with Rob. I've always liked Rob. He found his niche and he milked it for what it was worth. And I think that that's fantastic. That's showmanship. That's that's what you do. He was just very nice. And did you ever see that video where the guy goes over and, and he's at a con and he buys like how to draw comics and gives it to Rob Liefeld and like wow. goes and <laughs> like says, I want my $5 back for all the X-Force I had to buy for and <laughs> Now it's like, you can't draw feet and all sorts of stuff. And I'm like, dude, shut up. I mean, you were probably one of the ones jacking up the prices and (laughs) making me pay twice as much for, you know, X-Force because it sold out because you got there on a Wednesday 10 minutes before I did. Yeah. He did just yesterday release a updated picture of the cap boob. It was Sam Wilson from like the Heroes Reborn, a reimagined version of it. Just this this giant chested Captain America. I was like, oh my God, this picture is, it's so bizarre. What I was curious about, Mike, is do Rob's occasional projects now at Marvel, like Michael was just mentioning, or like that Snake Eyes miniseries, or does that all sell as much at your store as he kind of likes to promote himself? It's like, oh, these are huge sellers. These are a big deal. Like, is there still a, a fan base? There's, I mean, I sell out of what I get. I don't I don't get the numbers that, you know, Mile High used to get or, yeah. you know, the bigger ones. But I mean, you know, I can I can sell you know, like 10 or 15 copies of Rob Liefeld's thing, which is better than I was buying back in the day. So, you know, <laughs> and like I I absolutely love uh, Alan Moore's Supreme. I thought that that was such a fantastic run on the character. 
it made me go back and buy the original image stuff because I had forgotten how terrible that was. <laughs> so, yeah. So he he made me forget. Alan Moore made me forget how <laughs> terrible those comics were. But Rob wasn't the only one feeling the pinch. In another sign of the times, the comic book industry, Acclaim Comics cuts titles, announces that Acclaim Comics will cease production on all of its current comic books in 1998. The video game company is still going to publish books and magazines based on the comics they turned into video games like Turok, Shadow Man, and Bloodshot. But as editor-in-chief Fabian explains, they'll be in different formats tailored to reach a bigger audience. Something's out of whack when a Turok video game sells millions of units, but the Turok comic sells 13,000 copies. I'm not actually terribly surprised if you think about it, like video games, especially at that time when you have like the birth of like the PlayStation and all that kind of stuff was getting nuts. Like it was huge. Mike, do you remember the lows in the comic marketplace like around the late 90s? Because it was also like the economy was kind of in a different place at that time. Oh, very much. I remember when towards the time when they were going to suspend all of the main titles of Marvel. And then they had like a resurgence of Spider-Man, the X-Men. And, you know, we got Thunderbolts out of that, which was amazing. And they farmed off the Captain Americas, Cap Boobs, and uh, (laughs) the Avengers and Fantastic Four off to Image. It was going to be like this new renaissance. And I was like, I don't see that happening. You know, it didn't make sense to me. Why would you farm out? But again, you you had Revlon. I think it was Revlon that that owned Marvel Comics for the most part. Did um, they really at that wow, time? A cosmetics wow. company. Okay. Was a, yeah. If I'm not mistaken, it was my God. What was his name? He was Perlman? married. Perlman. That's it. Ron yeah. Perlman. Because I kept getting him mistaken with Beauty and the Beast guy. But <laughs> he was married to Ellen Barkin. Oh wow. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that. Marvel had dropped to like 10 cents a share back. In oh, the yeah, it was it was like, in real bad shape in the stock market. <laughs> brutal, just horrible. And if it weren't for Marvel Knights, these guys were about to go under. Yeah, yeah, that's right around that. the corner here. I mean, they just announced it last issue that Marvel Knights is happening. So it's like, oh, OK, here's it's about to go back up. I'll admit, you know, when because I had taken like a hiatus from comics around this time, because, you know, girls when you're in a teenager versus comic books but like when marvel knights came out i was like wow this looks it was just looked different it felt different it felt more getting out of that the wacky the shoulder pads type of 90s and some of that so uh, no, exactly for sure Things are definitely changing all over the industry because in our next story here, we have after announcing his departure from Aquaman in Wizard 81, Peter David is now going to drop this bombshell on all of us. He is stepping down from writing The Incredible Hulk after 12 years, penning the tales of Marvel Comics' Green Goliath. Now, when asked to explain his decision, David reveals, quote, I was told I'd be required to come up with Hulk-centric plots that would have ramifications throughout the Marvel Universe. I don't like originating those. I feel guilty if I screw with other writers' plans for their own titles. So a little solidarity with this fellow writers where you gotta do these crossover plans. It sounds like 
maybe this was like a World War Hulk thing they were planning earlier. I don't know. That's interesting. But anyway, it turns out that Adam Kubert, who is his artist at this time, is going to be jumping ship along with Peter David after issue 467, with Kubert returning briefly to the X-Men for a four-issue run. And meanwhile, Peter David will be focusing on the new Young Justice title for DC. And taking over the Incredible Hulk will be Joe Casey, an artist Mike Waringo, with a rookie named Javier Polito filling in for the first few issues of this new run. So the question I have is, can you guys think, has there been a longer run on a non-creator-owned comic series than Peter David on the Hulk for 12 years unbroken? Dan Slott was on Spider-Man for a really long, amazing Spider-Man, for, and, and Hickman was on a Fantastic Four for a long time, too. Kurt Swan on Superman, he started in like 58 and uh, gave over the reins in like 1986. I mean, he was back and forth between Superman and action comics, like 58 to, yeah, at least... 1981 82 yeah i think wow. we did read about that in one of the superman articles that yeah because we, yeah we did we did like a superman a couple of special episodes there's been so yeah. many special issues i can't even keep track but, but mike do you have a favorite peter david run like is there a certain book that he wrote that actually was a favorite of yours uh, i did like his aquaman run and i did like parts of his incredible hulk run i love the pantheon but once he took them away, I think he stutter stepped and, you know, he was bringing in these British artists or Marvel was for him, which they were great. I mean, we we got Gary Frank out of that, Paul Palettier. And I was like, keep keep them coming, boys, keep them coming. And then, you know, nothing. Then mm-hmm. then we Ariel Olivetti, who fine artist, but just didn't quite match the Hulk mm-hmm. vibe for me. Yeah, Gary Frank to me is like my favorite artist, like one 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 of the top five. He's unbelievable. I met him at New York Comic Con a couple of years ago. He was super nice. My favorite Peter David run is actually his Supergirl run. That one is it's a, it just it kind of like reinvented that character in a lot of ways for a long time. Yeah, and I just started reading. I I picked up a collection uh, in some back issue bids, like the first like fourteen issues of Young Justice, and I've really been enjoying that. That is just a fun fun series. So I mean, there's so many to choose from with Peter David, but give us this next one here, Michael, a little bit more somber tone. So the next segment is Exit Laughing reports on the passing of veteran comic book writer Archie Goodwin at the age of sixty after a battle with cancer on March 1st, 1998. Goodwin had a major impact on DC and Marvel throughout the 70s, 80s, and into the 90s as an editor-in-chief, group editor, and writer. Wizard gathered together friends and co-workers like Mike Carlin, Denny O'Neill, Chuck Kim, Andy Helfer, to share their happiest memories of Goodwin. As Carlin remembers, there was a decree once at Marvel to get the editors in earlier. So Archie, being a, a good employee, got there earliest the next day and he showed up in a nightgown and nightcap and worked the whole day through just like that for 90s fans it mentioned that goodwin was instrumental in making james robinson starman which is another great book into the success that it was as robinson explains archie took a chance on tony and i Neither of us had ever done more than five consecutive issues of anything before Starman, but Archie saw us through the problems and deadlines. It made us very professional. If it wasn't for my dedication on Starman, I might have quit comics altogether, but that commitment came from one place, Archie Goodwin. 
it's kind of a nice little thing to say. So, Mike, what's one of the first things you have in mind, like when you think of Archie Goodwin as kind of his impact on comics in all those decades and everything? You know, he helped discover Walt Simonson, the Paul Kirk Manhunter series. That was one of his babies. Archie Goodwin, I, he's in my mind sort of synonymous with Roy Thomas. They were, you know, both coming up around the same time. And from what I understand, never met the man, but from what I've heard, really great guy. He was a huge nerd like us. So, hey, uh, speaking of huge nerds like us, though, here's the guy you know all too well Kevin Smith to write Green Arrow. It's no a- way. That'll <laughs> never sell. <laughs> it's a follow up to issue 81's interview with the filmmaker and comic book store owner, Kevin Smith, in which Mike's boss, yes, indicated that he had made a pitch to Green Arrow editor Darren Vincenzo about bringing back Oliver Queen to the title. And now he'll actually be relaunching that title with a new number one after the series current run ends in September 1998. The editor explains his side of how it all came together. Quote, Kevin came to DC for lunch and I ran into him in the hall. He said if Chuck Dixon ever wanted off to give him a call. Well, Chuck had to leave because of a big workload, so I called Kevin and offered it to him. He thought about it for all of 10 seconds and said, I'm in. We met over beers for a few hours and came up with literally 12 possible ways to do it. It's just a matter of picking the best one now. So this is another run that I recently have been able to rescue from the back issue bins. I can't wait Wait to read it because I'm just. I like, have the funny. entire trade. It's amazing, beautifully written, fantastic story. A way only Kevin could tell it. You know, it's just, it's yeah. so good. And Mike, what was your thought? You worked for him, and you found out Kevin Smith's writing comics. Like, what was the thought in your head when you found out about that? Uh, well, like I said, I was a reservist before I was an employee. Yeah. So, um, I mean, Green Arrow and Daredevil were all over the place. So I'm like. All right, I have to pick these up, you know, to show my solidarity. And Kevin's a hell of a writer and he writes great dialogue. He does. Like, you know, a little bit too much in Daredevil where it's like (laughs) sort of obscuring everything. It's just a bunch of word balloons on a page. So I'm like, there should be art someplace around here. The Green Arrow, the stuff that he came up with was brilliant. And the way that he brought him back, he kind of originated the trope that Jeff Johns would use, you know, Mm -hmm. let's bring him back, you know, this way. And it worked. And you also had that whole back and forth with Batman. It's like, Oliver, you never never had an original thought in your life, (laughs) uh, which I thought was just so great. And the liberal bleeding heart archer, there he was. But, you know, now he was taking people down. The Daredevil stuff was great, but I think he really like hit his stride when he like did a nice long run on on Green Arrow because he, he invented that onomatopoeia character, which I still think is one of the best like villains of the last you know thirty years. It's just a unique character, and it does that great arc with him in Batman years later, which I love. No, it's it's a really good. Green Arrow run. Really, really good. It got me into loving the character, truly. So to close out this segment, we have Guy Gardner's Gimmicks A Go-Go special report. How bizarre. Top Cow announces that Fathom Number 1 will be released in three different covers, but also three different interlude stories inside. 
Fathom number one A will feature a bonus story about the main character of Aspen. Fathom number one B will contain a story of an unnamed villain of the series. And Fathom number one C will be an early appearance by a mysterious character who won't show up until issue number six. Variant covers are one thing, but variant stories are a whole new ballgame. I don't like that idea at all. I think that almost sounds greedy in a way to like force the readers to buy three different number ones. I don't particularly like that. Wizard gives an official thumbs down to the variant covers gimmick from Top Cow, which produced 11 different covers for the Darkness number 11 and Awesome Entertainment's Young Blood relaunch, which released 12 different covers. That's crazy. Mike, do you? have any kind of like real kitschy fun gimmicks of the 90s that you just thought were great and loved or ones that you thought were ridiculous the only thing that they wanted to do was separate me from my cash yes uh, i remember do you remember team titans yes team titans but the team titans, oh totally yeah. yes. and how many variant number ones they had on that it told you a different story but from a different point of view and it was like so stupid and i'm like uh, it just because you had to buy them. Yes. Because why? Because God damn it, I'm a completist. I'm sorry. <laughs> exactly. Yes, so exactly. It's, it's killing me. And I've got to spend this hard-earned money for you stupid people to do your stupid jobs. God. So- w- wouldn't it be so frustrating when you go to the store and something like that, but like they had nine of 10 issues or like 11 of 12. And you're like, and you're like going to other places to find them. Yeah, now I got to go someplace else for this. Are you insane? I like the old times when it was just, you had one cover, one story. That was <laughs> The story was great. Yeah. You know, you're paying for the damn story. Yes. So, Mike, how do you handle, because obviously variant covers are still a huge part of the business. How do you handle that? Look, <laughs> head in hand. So what do you do <laughs> as a retailer? Uh, oh. I look for the ones with Nicolas Cage or uh, Paul McCartney on them. And then I buy a bunch of them and I lose them. And then I sell them on the uh, secondary market. Later on, like twenty five bucks. That's how we stay in afloat. No, it's I, you've got to temper it. This is one of those things where they're like, "Oh my god, what what do I get? How do I do this?" Because DC puts out at least three variants for every comic book. Yeah, Marvel does much worse. Is egregious with their variants, and people come in like, "Hey, you got that variant?" Uh, or, "Hey, it's the." Disney 100th anniversary, Mickey Mouse in his Iron Man suit. And it's like, really? This is what, yeah, that's what you're doing to me? You're killing me. There's a couple things that I, I truly appreciate. They have the uh, the John Romita Jr. inking over his father's stuff, which I love. And it's an that's an homage cover. They did the same thing for George Perez. And I'm like, the homage covers? Absolutely. That I can get behind. But 400 covers for what? a random supergirl or r- random just like spider-man one-off book or like what drives me crazy is like you have characters like silk or spider gwen they have 75 different covers and, and they reboot it all the time how many number ones it like depletes the value of the book it, it just it's just like okay number one is insignificant that doesn't mean anything anymore <laughs> right just write silk on there this is the one where she 
has sex with Peter Parker. What I just, <laughs> write it on the cover, just like they did with Friends. You know, yeah. or this is yeah. one where she kills a guy. <laughs> All right. Well, let's dig deeper into this issue now. Uh, there's so much to talk about in our table of contents. Wizard issue 83 with a June 1998 cover date featured two different covers. The first being a Howard Porter JLA piece with DC's Holy Trinity of Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman. Now, the second cover was a dramatic Iron Man piece by the artist of the Heroes Return series, Sean Chan. The thing that's interesting, this issue came packed with a sticker sheet featuring all the current members of the JLA. I think I have one of those still. Yeah, yeah, I, I yes. sent you one of these because I opened up the poly bag. There were 11 of these sheets. There was only supposed to be one. So total bonus here. I don't know how that happened, but I was just like, <laughs> somebody at the printing plant got crazy. They got high on the fumes. <laughs> the other thing that was in there, there is a poster featuring Kyle Rayner, Silver Age Hal Jordan, charging into battle to promote issue 100 of Green lantern of course it was backed by a brian douglas ahern calendar inside there was a mail away offer for an ascension half comic now this one is kind of ironic because at that point wizard had just reported in the previous issue that the co-creator of that book bot had left due to creative differences with dave finch so like we're promoting it but the team has split up already we've already spent it and i can't get the money back from the printer so screw <laughs> you buddy uh but mike i know you were reading wizard we talked about that is is there like any packet or promotional thing from Wizard that sticks out of your mind that you can recall? Oh, a bunch. I, and I was really excited for this one. The AOL um, disc? No, no, no. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, because we used to play toss across with that. Yes. Um, no, they had uh, the Union Jack mail away figure. That was awesome. They also had Teen Titans one half and Ultimate Spider-Man one half. You know, you can mail away and you, you're only allowed to get two copies per person. That's it. Whoa. No, no mas, senor. <laughs> Those copies for you. That's probably like, better because, you know, the, the resale market even back then was like ridiculous. The really funny thing is that I bought Dose <laughs> and I brought one into Walt and we put it up on the wall and the Teen Titans one half went for at that time, it, you know, you mail away five bucks and I think we were selling it for 15 and we weren't even gouging people. Oh, no. People would go 50 on that book. easily. We went, yeah, we would go around and people were going 50 and we're like, should we change our thing? And I'm, nah, nah, nah. 15 is good. Yeah, that's great. I hey. actually like the Iron Man cover better than the, the Trinity cover. I think the Iron Man cover is more iconic than than the DC cover. Huge fan of Sean Chen. Speaking of that JLA cover, though, it is our first cover story. Under Pressure is an interview with writer Grant Morrison and DC editor Dan Raspler about the future of the hugely popular JLA, which had recently expanded its roster beyond the core heavy hitters, which is why we got those stickers. It showed everybody. And you're like, oh, who? Zoriel? What is this? You know, a move which Wizard pointed out had actually spelled doom for the Justice League in previous decades because they specifically mentioned the Detroit era team where Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman were replaced by the unknown Vibe and Gypsy and Vixen, you know, became core members of the team. That after a successful stab at humor with Justice League International in 1987, DC overexposed the team by creating four new titles, Justice League Europe, Justice League Quarterly, Justice League Task Force, and of course, by then it was the 90s, Extreme Justice. 
<laughs> so when asked if he sees a dangerous road ahead by expanding the roster beyond the core heroes, Morrison responds, quote, I know some people are probably thinking that this has happened before, and we've seen the team get big and unwieldy and out of control, but I think I can manage it. So hopefully they will trust me and we'll see what happens. But having seen the same thing happen at Marvel with their popular team book, Wizard asks, is the JLA turning into DC's X-Men? Morrison answers insightfully, my feeling is yes, but there's nothing I could do about it because these decisions are made by marketing. If JLA is selling real well, then DC should apply the same creativity to the books that aren't selling really well and bring them up rather than taking a book that's selling really well and subdivide it so it stops selling at all. Historically, it's been proven that if you try to milk a hit, you kill the hit. Grant Morrison, this guy. I mean, you've seen it time and again, I'm assuming, Mike. Oh, yeah, of course. You know, how many times have we seen Wolverine joining like 83 teams? Wasn't Wolverine. he a member of Power Pack for a while? <laughs> oh, yeah. He was probably oh, every book at one point. He's been a team of, of something. It's, it's he was he was a he was a mighty Morphin Power Ranger. Yes, I have no doubt in my mind. <laughs> he, was, he was on the Smurfs too. You know, and <laughs> <laughs> I'd, I'd hit that Smurfette, bub. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it was, and especially just at this time, that was a huge strategy. You know, especially just from that era of the early '90s and the fact that they were still trying to do it again. I'm just curious. Does that happen today? It feels like it doesn't. Constantly. Really it constantly still. happens where they, they still do this. Right now, they let Brian Michael Bendis. And I, I think part of it was the fact that they brought the names to the team rather than having the team book go organically. Because you got mm. Brian Michael Bendis. And I don't know if you read any of his Justice League run. Don't. There's no need to. And his Superman run, don't do that either. Because, I mean... <laughs> did some interesting things with it but he didn't do anything groundbreaking yeah dc uh, and the comic book fans set money on fire with his time at dc comics oh yeah oh my <laughs> god it's, and they signed him to like this exclusive contract and yada 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 yeah and it wasn't that good i mean no. scott Snyder did a great job with the multiversity or not multiversity the, the metal stuff the death metal, metal and the metal, you know yeah. and joshua williams doing that with the dark crisis now yeah, the multiverse is back, and all of your stories are valid. I don't know how that works, but it's confusing, but it works somehow. Yeah, someday somebody will explain it to me. <laughs> Usually, when when I'm in a nursing home, and they're willing, and, and that's how that happened, Mister Zapsick. And um, we'll get you some nice tapioca. Won't that be good? So I mean, I mean, Bendis messed everything up, and he screwed up the Legion of Superheroes, and. That pissed me off. Me too. Yeah. I'm a huge Legion fan. Uh, have been, you know, forever. So am I. I've, I have like almost the entire run from the 90s, at least for sure. And well, I a... think I have the entire run just from uh, like the archive editions, mm -hmm. and the Omnibuy, Omnibuses. <laughs> but you're taking that and you're flushing like thousands of years down the toilet. Yeah. So, and it's it pissed crazy. me off. Yeah, it was a bummer. I remember the hype that I remember nobody talking about it after the fact. Nobody yeah. was excited about what came out of it. There you go. And that's what happens. I suppose you'd call it the Claremont syndrome, where a guy is, you know, he thinks his, his poop don't smell. Mm -hmm. Everything that he, he writes down is... Bible. <laughs> yeah, the Gutenberg Bible. But it's not. I, I mean, I tried to read Extreme X-Men. And if uh, Claremont doesn't have somebody plotting with him it's just so unwieldy you know i'm not trying to slag on the guy but yeah i am if claremont blocks you that's all <laughs> <me>. <laughs> i'd be i'd be You're honored welcome. be like wow 
We're sorry, Chris Clearmountain on Instagram. (laughs) Uh, But I have spoken uh, of my opinion of this next series in a previous episode. So, Michael, why don't you give us this? And I'm curious if you have a take or not, Mike. Our second cover story is The Man in the Iron Mask is a look at the philosophy of the new Iron Man creative team of Kurt Busiak and Sean Chen on portraying Iron Man during the Heater's Return era. Uh, says Busiak, Tony has to negotiate through a minefield of corporate dealings with finesse. Iron Man, on the other hand, is a tank. He's much tougher, much more arrogant than Tony would ever dream of being. Sean Chen adds, just as they're om- like almost two separate personalities, I try to draw them as two distinct characters. As for what the other Marvel heroes think of old Shellhead, the heroes that know Tony's secret generally respect him as a hero. They know he's Tony Stark. They know he's putting his life on the line the same way they are. Among other heroes who don't know, there's a feeling that this guy is a mercenary. As for the billionaire industrialist motivations, to risk his life, Busiek explains, he feels guilty for what's happened in the Avengers the crossing where he went nuts and became a killer and what happened with the onslaught he failed his self-appointed mission as iron man and he's got to make good on that finally the inevitable question of whether or not tony's alcoholism will surface in the future storylines is asked to which busiak responds i've read enough drunk tony stories to last me a good long time as far as i'm concerned Tony's on the wagon. And I I kind of agree with that. Like they lean so heavy into the alcoholism in like the eighties and so on and so forth. It was just like, we get it. Okay. I almost look at it as a, as a way of like saying, look, he's risen above that as, you know, people who struggle with addiction can can connect with that. Okay, he's making better choices. And I think that's kind of important. But prior to his big screen reinvention a decade later, do you feel that Iron Man's main identity in the minds of the comics fans was the alcoholic hero? Or could it point more to a real good storyline about a character defined by his struggles and trying to overcome that kind of stuff? Um, my thoughts on this are, how do I put this? The demon in a bottle was a great storyline. And (laughs) I mean, Tony before that, like six issues was never really shown as a drunk. Yeah. And it's not something that, you know, really, you know, happens all at once. It's progressive. He's definitely a type A personality and he is kind of a mercenary when you think about it, because he was designing weaponry to kill other people. And whether or not he he pulled the trigger himself, he was he was manufacturing guns, bombs, missiles. They were killing many, many. I mean, I'm sure he's got a body count probably bigger than Galactus. Well, not that big, but bigger than Doom. So to ask, what do we define Tony as? I thought that whole crossing was a crock of crap. (laughs) That was just God awful writing. And I think that you see it all the time. There's, there is God awful writing in comic books. You know, why don't we treat comic books like the literature it is because we have stuff like the crossing where Tony Stark goes out and kills. Did we even know what her name was? The little pig woman. (laughs) They killed the pig woman. And I think he killed yellow jacket so mm-hmm. he killed a woman and he killed a woman who shrinks and uh does that make tony misogynistic maybe yeah he's kind of misogynistic i mean think about how convoluted this is they bring his teen self 
you know, from the past to take over for him right now because they need a Tony Stark. And then, hey, Onslaught's coming. This is the the big eraser. Now, (laughs) (laughs) for me, this is when I considered getting the hell out of comic books. Oh, wow. I could understand that. I I really could. Now, right before the whole Onslaught thing, the the Heroes Reborn. Heroes Reborn, During all of that, it was like, oh, my God. You've got Wasp, who looks like a human wasp. Mm. They did that before, back in the seventies. Yeah, and they're like, "Oh my God, this is they're they're going backwards instead of forwards." And then you've got Hank Pym becoming Giant Man again, and I it, it was just like, "Oh my God, this this really sucks. This is like as low as comics are going to get." It's like, no, no, hold on, the two thousands are coming. Uh, they're going <laughs> to you to hold their beer. So for me, Tony Stark. I loved what Robert Downey Jr. did for him. I really think that's like the defining what Tony Stark is. Over that 10, 12 years of seeing that journey that Robert Downey Jr. took us on, that's who I think Iron Man is, comics or otherwise. It's it's that. Although I, I will say for me, the time I paid attention to who Tony Stark was, I didn't care about Iron Man my whole childhood growing up. But when Civil War happened and he's like the Secretary of Defense also, and he's got he's got all these interesting facets going on in that story. I really enjoyed that version of Tony Stark and kind of the struggle he was having. You know, it's like these are all my friends defending the world, but I also am going to go on this bandwagon, you know. But that's the whole thing. And that it, that didn't make any sense to me. That was more along the lines of this is really awful that this is going to happen and it's going to happen, but they didn't take it all the way. I think that Mark Miller was told you're not allowed to go, you know, the the full hundred yards. You're going to have to pull it back because they had stuff where Tony was profiteering from the Mm -hmm. war and Ben Urich had like the receipts and they never pushed that because I was like, I want to hear more about this. And they're like, no, 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 because. We've got Tony Stark is going to be on the big screen. So yeah, can't be tarnishing him. It's like you cowardly pieces of crap. (laughs) Holy cow. How dare you do that? How did if you're going to and they had hinted about making Tony a bad guy for a very long time. And I'm like, okay, because he was manipulating Peter Parker. Yeah. Like nobody's business. And for me. He's a manipulator. He will do whatever he needs to do. That's what Tony is. You want you want my take? Tony will do and be whoever he needs to be. He's on his side of the law. Yeah. You know, whether it's morally right or morally wrong, he doesn't care. He's I- going to be where Tony needs to be. And Tony's, hey, you know what? He thinks he's he's one of like the 10 smartest people in the world. And he might be, but he thinks that gives him the right to decide. Yeah. And- you know, he, but you're right though. He is a very like type A personality, and he, he is kind of a, a a character of extremes. You know, like it's all the way this, or it's all the way that, and it's nothing in between. There's it's yeah. this is this is it. And I didn't necessarily read this run, but I do know of it. You know, especially the coming out of onslaught. This whole time period was just like gobbledygook and and kind of a mess. Like a lot of other heroes, though, he kind of evolves with the time in a way in, in different you know capacities. 
Yeah, yeah, he definitely he's had his ups and downs. The MCU definitely, you know, smoothed his edges and made him more lovable, like we said. But there's another guy in the world of comics who likes to do his own thing, and that is Eric Larson. Wizard has a Q&A with him in this issue, and they want to explore the outrageous adventures found in the Savage Dragon, but they actually look to the future as the Image co-founder seeks to reestablish his reputation in the comic book industry at large. First, it's announced that the Savage Dragon will meet Superman in an upcoming having two-part story, but Larson seeks to set expectations for the fans. He says, quote, people keep saying, oh man, I can't wait for that fight. Why the hell would they fight? In the story, Dragon's gonna be a cop and Superman is Superman. He's not gonna punch Superman. What is he, insane? <laughs> but that's not the only plans for Larson at DC. It's announced that he'll be taking over the writing duties on Aquaman from the departing Peter David as of issue number 50. And says Larson on his take with the character, quote, when I look at Aquaman, I go, you know, everybody in the book is a human being. They look like human beings. They're walking around on the floor doing the same stuff you and I do. This world has so much potential and possibility and not much of it has been tapped. Thank God Peter David was around because he kept the book going for so long. Now, just to be clear though, I, I read these issues that Larson wrote. He's writing Aquaman. This guy named Eric Battle is the artist and then Larson does some covers to kind of trick you a little bit, you know, so uh, and the, and the results are okay. They're not fantastic. I think it is always better when Larson is writing and drawing. Like, there's there's something dynamic about him working together. It's kind of the same way I feel about Mike Allred. Like, Mike Allred did all these books. Everybody loves, like, you know, Silver Surfer and Ecstatics and all that, but it never works for me unless it's all him for whatever reason. Like, I, I just can't get on board with those other projects. But I do want to mention here, it turns out that Aquaman wasn't the only book being abandoned by Peter David that then Larson tried to grab for himself, because he also pitched Marvel Editorial to get the gig writing The Incredible Hulk. And as he explains, quote, my proposal was like eight pages long, pretty extensive. The main thing I wanted to do was have Bruce Banner and the Hulk get separated, and the Hulk to be sort of a superpowered dead man type guy, a ghostly Hulk, who could inhabit other people and turn them into the Hulk. I didn't get it. They had better get somebody really brilliant on that book, or they'll look like complete idiots. So, what do you think of that take, guys? <laughs> Eric Larson's Hulk. Minute, that's pretty damn arrogant for him to say that. <laughs> but, but, hey, what are you going to do? Yeah, I mean, but that, I mean, Ghost Hulk that will possess other people, turn him into the Hulk. I mean, it's kind of cool. I don't know. It's about as popular as that Punisher run where he was supernatural Punisher, I think. Well, honestly, actually, in the second Secret Wars, when he has the powers of, of Doctor Strange and using like Doctor Strange kind of guns in Battle World, that's kind of cool. I'll, I'll, I'll say that. That's, it, was kind of, it was with Punisher. The problem is, I feel like, you know, they, they use the old Italian trope that like my grandmother was like, you take the spaghetti and throw it against the wall and see what sticks and say, oh, let's give this a shot and see what happens. And it doesn't always work for me, in, in my opinion. Yeah, well, as it goes in his own sandbox, though, he was approaching 50 issues of the Savage Dragon at this point, and he reveals, quote, I've never spent more than 24 hours scripting an issue of Dragon in my life, or anything else for that matter. <laughs> so your mileage may vary from what you think of Savage Dragon, but as for why he draws such well-endowed women, Larson states bluntly, quote, I just plain like to draw big knockers. That's what it comes down to, I guess. It keeps me entertained. <laughs> I, I, Him and Jim Ballant, you know? There you go. <laughs> 
Now, Wizard also includes a sidebar of the top 10 most outrageous printable moments in the Savage Dragon. They make that very clear, which tells you how wild this creator-owned series could get. You know, if Wizard is thinking it's too hot for print on their side. But Mike, I got to ask this burning question. We've kind of been asking this for the last a couple of months. What kind of fan in your experience still has Savage Dragon on their pull list? Like, do you see enough subscribers through the, you know, the stores you've been in that keep Eric Larson in business? Because like nobody's out there going rah, rah, Savage Dragon, but he's getting to 300 issues at this point. How is that possible? I have no idea. And if he had to depend on me, he ain't eating meat. <laughs> this week, not next week. He ain't eating. I get, I have literally one person gets Savage Dragon. Wow. And I have quite a reservist list. So yeah, I just, uh, what, where are all the books going? Where's his hot spot? You know, I don't know. I mean, uh, I, where I, does he live? Yeah, yeah I was going to say, it's it's out, <laughs> sells out of his garage. Yeah. Gives him out for Halloween, you know. <laughs> hey, kid, no Snickers bars here, but here, have a Savage Dragon. Oh, tell your parents. Yeah. <laughs> that, that does say a good candy, though. Ooh, a savage dragon candy sounds delicious. Oh, um, I will tell you, Mike. I, I actually <laughs> I ate uh, a copy of X Force number one on one of our videos. So I, you know, some comics we have attempted to make edible. So. Yeah, we, okay. he lost a bet, and, and uh, we, we were trying uh, to get some views on YouTube. <laughs> okay. I would have gone for one of the pulpier ones. <laughs> Although, you know, X-Force number one, I could, I could say, were you allowed to use like a little bit of mustard or ketchup? <laughs> Not quite. Nope, that wasn't part of the deal. Did I, I had to stop because it was making Michael sick. <laughs> you know, I just, just watch it. This is, I'm like, we're, we're really trying too hard here to get clicks, but okay, whatever it happens. Um <laughs> Hey geeks, it's time to take a break from this episode to tell you about our sponsor, HalloweenCostumes.com, and the great selection of costumes available, plus how you could get 15% off your entire order by using the link in our show notes. Now, the clock is ticking, and I still haven't decided what I'm going to be for Halloween this year. I was browsing the HalloweenCostumes.com site today. I found out they have a full-on Peacemaker costume. I'm still waiting for a season two announcement on that show. And their Ant-Man costume looks pretty sweet. My wife loves Paul Rudd so I probably could please her with that one. Uh, they also have a plethora of Robin costumes from Burt Ward to 90s animated series Dick Grayson or comics accurate Tim Drake. You can find your flavor of Boy Wonder. Their Shazam movie and comic book costumes are truly impressive as well. For the ladies, they have some fun stuff like they have exclusive She-Hulk and RC from Transformers costumes. They got Powerpuff Girls. They got Jessica Drew Spider-Woman and a Shuri Black Panther costume. If you need couples ideas, I noticed Adam West Batman and Julie Newmore Catwoman costumes that look fantastic. They also have all the Incredibles. If you're looking forward to the new movie, there's a Jason Momoa Aquaman and Mira costume combo you can do. Of course, there's so much more to choose from, including cartoon and movie icons, video game heroes, and more. So I can't make up my mind. I'm sure you will be more decisive than me. Just follow the link in our show notes today to get 15% off your entire order at Halloween costumes.com between now and October 31st. And hey, let's get back to the show. Now it's time to close up the main event with ringsides 
which is a look at the battle between Hal Jordan fans and the Green Lantern editorial team over the Silver Age hero going insane and becoming a villain, then dying to save the Earth in, in the conclusion of the final night event. The Hal Jordan turn and introduction of Kyle Rayner as the sole Green Lantern in the universe was so successful that editor Kevin Dooley explains sales on the book went up 300% and there's an awful lot of Kyle Rayner fans now out there. Green Lantern is consistently one of the most popular DC books that doesn't contain Batman or Superman. The decision was not popular, however, with a passionate section of older fans who organized themselves as a group called Heat or Hal's Emerald Attack Team, which had recently changed its name to Hal's Emerald Advancement Team so as to not seem quite as militant. Wow. The group campaigned through letter writing, online petitions, and print ads and comic publications to get writer Ron Mars and editor Kevin Dooley to be removed from the book since they refused to bring back Hal or the Green Lantern Corps. Oh my goodness. Those are the same guys that now sit on Twitter and just like roll people and shake their fists in the dark. Crazy. Yeah, they're, they're on my Reddit pages. I have like 12 of them. <laughs> I like Zapsic Reddit pages. It's insane. <laughs> Do you really? Uh, I think so. I don't know. I've, I've, I have never set foot on Reddit, nor will I. I neither I, have I. I, I. People like, you know, people hate you on Reddit. I'm like, how could they hate you? <laughs> it's so easy. I don't know. It's. I, I've only been talking to you for an hour and I'm, I I think you're great. So I don't know. People Thank are crazy. Thank you so much. Don't um, go on Reddit then. I won't. But it got out of control, according to Dooley, who explains, I got death threats. They insulted my wife. They insulted my daughters. How are you supposed to react to that? I admire them for being uh, this sincere of fans. I do question how they went about it, though. Ron Mars' take on the situation, he says, To me, the fans had the same roles as they do when you're watching TV or a movie or a sporting event. They're the audience. As a creator, I can't be dictated by the audience. I disagree, though, because I feel like the publisher is trying to gear toward the audience, right? Like, that's how they make their money. If the audience doesn't like it, they're not going to buy it. But, I mean, this is crazy. This this seems extreme even for, like, you know, fanatical people. Like, it seems extreme even for the 90s. Yes. Hey, <laughs> exactly. Extreme. <laughs> Mike, do you have any thoughts on crazy fandoms when they made some sort of major change that people went nuts over? Always. I mean, other than maybe Azrael Batman, people went nuts uh, over. As Bat, uh, <laughs> when uh, Dan DiDio almost killed off Nightwing. Oh, yeah. Fans almost went insane on him. And poor guy, he's just like, he's like, hey, I, you know what? That, we're we're trying something new dude don't kill the messenger and you know i mean there are people who are pissed off that jeff johns brought back barry allen the flash oh oh, yeah you can't please everyone here's how you react and no you don't give them thumbs up for being so you know if if they're threatening your wife yeah if they're you know threatening to send bombs to your house you don't (laughs) applaud them for being fans no you condemn them for being insane lunatics with entirely too much time on their hands because <laughs> this is if you're a member of heat and i i mean i'm gonna check my wallet to make sure that i get my heat membership card <laughs> out of there um i loved the kyle rayner character i thought that he was fantastic and it, it sprung up a new movement of the women in refrigerator movement yes i was just gonna so, say that which 
personally speaking, I I mean, I saw it and I'm like, holy Christ, that it was very brutal, but it was it was a punctuation and it was to be honest with you, a fictional character. He Ron Mars didn't murder a woman and jam her in uh, that I know of. <laughs> so they're fictional characters. We get you get hate all over the place for something you're passionate about. And it's it's insane. It, I mean, it, it, it's just like, you know, fans of shows like Lost and they flip out how the, the show ended or like, you know, a, a turn, you know, that they didn't like on Breaking Bad or they just they have people have this like visceral reaction to things that it, it almost like it makes you question, like, what else is going on in their lives that that this was the like the straw that broke the camel's back that triggered them to. Well, to well some... listen, listen to this, guys, because this next section of the article is OK. We're giving the Heat members a chance to tell their side of the story and try to be reasonable. Oh, so, man. Extending <laughs> an olive branch of sorts to DC, one Heat member, Jack Grimes, explains, quote, we're not asking for Kyle Rayner's replacement or departure. We believe Hal and the core can coexist in a universe as big as the DCU. We just want to be able to read about our own Green Lantern. The reason we can't get over it, and we've been told that many times, is that John Broom, Steve Englehart, and Denny O'Neill made us care about these characters so much, and not being able to experience them has taken away something that we enjoy. See, they're the victims here. Now, the article does feature a wizard poll, though, asking who's a better Green Lantern, which found Kyle Rayner walking away with 50.1% of the vote, while Hal Jordan just barely lost with 49.9% of the vote, which kind of shows you how divided the fan base was at this time, at least on the wizard AOL. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> We just did a, an X poll, if you will, a Twitter poll for our, our followers, and they all voted overwhelmingly for Kyle Rayner. Now, little bias, they're all 90s kids like us. So, I mean, that, but they say Kyle Rayner of the 90s was definitely the best Green Lantern because Hal was a villain for most of it. So, <laughs> and Hal was boring. Hal got to be a boring old guy. And I mean, I'm I'm gray at I have many, many gray hairs, much more than Hal does. Uh, but they gave him gray temples and they aged him up. And he was, you know, he was becoming Barry Allen. You know, it's like, how many times are we going to give, you know, Hal Jordan his own comic book? And how many times is he going to fail us? Mm -hmm. And that's what DC was looking at. And they needed a bold new approach. And personally, I think that this was really cool. It's almost like, like the John Byrne uh, Superman run, even a little bit after that, when he went into outer space, mm -hmm. he exiled himself after invasion. And he's like, you know what? Screw this noise. I'm going to go on walkabout for a little while. And that's what you needed to to have him find himself as a hero again. They yeah. never gave that to, to Hal. And they gave it to Kyle. Kyle did it better than anybody. Yeah, it was really cool. Now, I want to get your take on this as well, because Wizard closes out the article by allowing Jack Grimes to have a direct line to Ron Mars in what? order to ask why he won't comply with their demands. And it basically comes down to this one inquiry. Why did everything have to be destroyed just to make room for one character? We lost Oa, the Guardians, all those unique fantasy elements that made Green Lantern so mythological for 30 years, which Mars counters with, quote, to my mind, having a bunch of other Green Lanterns who could basically do the same thing 
thing as Hal detracted from his character. His adventures never seemed terribly serious to me because if Hal was in trouble, someone could always bail him out. There were 3,600 of these guys running around and somebody had to have some free time. So the question I have is, do you think Mars's position was right, at least for the 90s, but not ultimately true for the Green Lantern universe, given what Jeff Johns was able to do with Rebirth just a few years later, right? So like the core Hal existing and Kyle existing, like, do you think it's better now that all of that exists? I think that never would have happened if we didn't get Kyle Rayner. You know, Mm -hmm. if we have something where, because it, like I said, Hal was boring. He was your like 40-year-old uncle that was taking 17-year-old you to strip clubs. Yeah. <laughs> He's the douchey uncle. Yeah. Yes. That's exactly what he was. He was that douchey uncle. He's like, hey, you know what? Let's go get drunk. And, you know, I'm going to try to get laid and I'm going to try to get you laid. And it's like, that is awful. You're a horrible human being and you're a horrible superhero. So it's like, look, Tony Stark, Hal Jordan, ah, they needed the revamp. They needed they uh, some definite work on their characters and it happened. So, you know, I, I do I do think that at least, especially with Green Lantern, they were better for this move. Though I do love, you know, you mentioned Barry Allen earlier. Growing up in the 80s and 90s, Wally West was my flash. Like, I, I still love Wally West. I think, like, some of the best stories that came out of comics were, were Wally West. And I feel like since they brought back Barry, they just don't know what to do with that character at all. Wally is, they, he's one of those characters, they, they don't know how to write him anymore. He's just a problem. Yeah, I, I agree. And I'm... I think that Wally is fantastic as a character. He is the Flash. Yeah. I mean, Barry can be the Flash too, but he's the Flash. Yeah, I will say the best version of Barry Allen has been on the various television series that we've had in live action. And that being the case, Michael, speaking of live action superheroes, it's time you take us into Heroes in Motion. Oh boy, this is my favorite part because it's, it's all the failed movies and TV <laughs> pilots that, that that they they say are going to happen, guys. Get ready. Yay. <laughs> the new Batman is the main story in the coming attraction section of this issue. As we previously announced, a new animated series starring a futuristic Batman being mentored by elderly Bruce Wayne was in production by Bruce Tim and Paul Dini at the helm. However, as reported in this issue, several of the details of what would become Batman Beyond had yet to been fully ironed out. For example, the show was referred to as Batman Tomorrow, and Terry McGinnis was named Terry McGavin. They did follow through to reveal that Alfred and Jim Gordon would both be dead and that Barbara Gordon was going to be the Gotham Police Commissioner, as well as the fact that there would not be a futuristic version of Batman's rogues gallery aside from a gang calling themselves the Jokers, which I was always fine with the show. I thought for, you know, characters and comic book story ideas, Batman Beyond coming, you know, from nothing and becoming the show that it was and now still being a popular comic that 20 five or so years later is still being sold is pretty wild. Adam and I have already talked at nauseum about, you know, Batman Beyond and did a bit on our our Batman special bonus episode. But Mike, uh, were you a fan of this series? And do people still regularly buy the, the Batman Beyond book in the shop? They do. And I was not, not originally. And it grew on me. I, you know, because 
let's face it, uh, at being a charter member of Heat, I couldn't let <laughs> this stand. You could not let Bruce Wayne and and, uh, and Kevin Conroy step down. <laughs> yeah, yes. How dare you take away my Gotham City? No, it wasn't. I, I mean, you've got this punk ass kid because mm-hmm. I, I did. I watched the first episode and I'm like, that punk ass punk kid. He should get off Bruce Wayne's lawn. That's what he <laughs> should do. And he refused to get off his lawn. But for me, I, I mean, I gave it a shot and it grew on me and it grew on me. And then there comes that time when it like the switch clicks and it's like, wait a minute, I, I'm enjoying this entirely too much. I was younger, obviously, and, you know, enjoyed it as a kid and, you know, a young Batman who is essentially like almost like a Peter Parker-esque, you know, archetype in a way. But it was when they did that uh, Return of the Joker mini movie where where they make uh, you know, Tim Drake have like an implanted version of the Joker in his brain that sort of was like, wow, this is mind-blowing for me. That's that a really good, cool. that's, yeah. that was a great writing and storytelling. And, and I actually liked in the comics, um, I don't know, maybe it was eight or so years ago when Tim Drake takes over the mantle, like a, he jumps to the future and he becomes Batman Beyond for a while. I love that. I thought that was so good. And I wish they didn't, you know, retcon that as they do. But I thought Batman Beyond was a cool show for its time and, and still has a huge fan base. Definitely a success, but unfortunately, Michael, things were not looking good for the Captain America animated series on Fox. It had gotten a full two-page report in a recent issue of Wizard. They were so excited about it. But according to sources, quote, there have been discussions of the series' concerns over some early creative choices. And these discussions seem to be focused on the fact that the series was set during World War II. And as we know, Cap's animated adventures do indeed get the axe. But speaking of canceled projects, a Zen the intergalactic ninja movie was set to begin filming in the summer of 1998 in Montreal with director Brian Usna of reanimator fame at the helm. Uh, That never happens in this or any other galaxy. Meanwhile, the Micronauts were supposed to be getting a syndicated animated TV show. They would kick off with a five-part miniseries in the fall of 1998, but that project never escaped the microverse to hit the small screen. Mike, do you remember any comic book movie being rumored or a show or something? something that you really wanted to see but we never got it the The goon i would love to see a live action the goon or even animated animated would be fantastic i'll Mm. take it have eric powell do the show running because i think that would be amazing i was always bummed when the 90s wesley snipes was so close to making a black panther movie that never happened i wanted that so bad then we got blade like blade is great (laughs) blade is cool we'll take blade Blade, Black Panther, sure. Uh, yeah, whatever. I mean, I feel like to this point, we haven't really gotten a good Hulk movie yet, but they were trying to make one at this time with like a practical Hulk puppet machine. I would have loved to seen how that came out. Something about just a physical real Hulk. It would have been interesting, but I don't know. Oh, I don't know. If it's not Lou Ferrigno, it's got to be CGI for me, really, <laughs> truly. Or John Malkovich doing the puppet. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Being Bruce Banner. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) would have been awesome. It would be amazing. Uh, So finally, with the Seinfeld TV series coming to an end, my one of my favorite shows of all time, uh, in May fourteenth of nineteen ninety eight, Wizard catalogs Superman references made during the many seasons of the iconic NBC sitcom. These include Jerry saying that his arch nemesis was Newman. Superman had his Lex Luthor. And he's mine. Uh, During an episode where a female reporter claims to have a crush on Jerry, he comments, I was attracted to you 
too. You reminded me of Lois Lane. And I think I think she was actually called Lois because there's a girl that he dates in Seinfeld that her name was Lois and he was attracted to just because her name was Lois for some <laughs> reason. Disgusted by George's stinky car. And actually, it's Jerry's stinky car. They're wrong. It was because, the, yes, there was the BO episode where, where a valet gets into Jerry's car and stinks it up and they couldn't even get it. But they, oh, wizard, I caught you. I caught you. <laughs> In one episode, Jerry declares that even Superman would be helpless against this kind of stench. Yes, that is that episode. They also reference an entire bizarro Jerry episode where Elaine starts hanging out with three other guys who are the exact opposite of Jerry, George, and Kramer. And she even says, wow, it is bizarro world. And there's actually a backward Superman in the whole thing. It's really, really I love that episode so much. It's so great. So good. Of course, Jerry also had his Superman statue and magnet prominently displayed in his apartment uh, in most of the episodes. And though not part of the series itself, Jerry Seinfeld co-starred in an American Express commercial. I remember this commercial vividly at this time with an animated Superman who was voiced by the guy that plays Elaine's boyfriend, Putty, in in, in the show as well. Yeah, he was the voice, yeah. Um, An actor who played Jimmy Olsen in the 50s TV series as well, as mentioned in the Magic Word section of this issue. Now, funny thing about that particular statue, that's actually a real statue but like if you try to find what that particular sculpt is it's like impossible i've looked for years to try to find it on ebay you can't find it i don't know where it is like to, what to where it came it. from originally yeah who was selling it that's crazy i don't know did they mention how george argued that Superman would not have a super sense of humor. Yeah, they missed that in there, though. That's good. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't. He's like, he doesn't have super humor. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly, yeah, I don't see that. I don't see. <laughs> I don't see. Yeah. All right. Well, hey, you know, there was a lot of hype around that commercial, but there's two guys that are always looking for the hype for themselves. So we got to rev up Jim and Todd's hype machine. <laughs> McFarlane shoots. He scores is a rumor from the buzz box of this issue indicating that Todd McFarlane was looking to buy an interest in an NHL hockey team. McFarlane does eventually become co-owner of the Edmonton Oilers, even designing an alternate logo for the team's third jersey in 2001, a jersey that has not been worn since 2007. Apparently, I was going on some wikis for the NHL and they were saying, yeah, it was a little controversial at the time. <laughs> He's wanted to create his own jersey. People thought they just Side was a little crazy. So, a retailer incentive book from Todd McFarlane Productions titled Totally Clips is reported to contain artwork by Greg Capullo, Todd McFarlane, Kelly Jones, and more, with their renditions of Spawn, Airboy, and Black Terror. The book sells for $150 these days and is a must-have for McFarlane completists. There you go. Another. I actually was able to find like, you know, a scanned copy of this online just to take a look. And it, Todd McFarlane, he bought Eclipse Comics. Like he bought like their whole, you know, back you know, catalog and everything. So he was, I guess, maybe going to relaunch it at this time. It's really strange. Like there's like a forward and Bo Smith was writing and, and he's like, oh, I started an Eclipse. So I don't know what the plan was because Wizard hasn't reported on anything that he was doing with that but this issue comes out and then basically just says oh you know you could get it retailer incentives these days mike is that is that still a thing where you get like the super exclusive issues in sometimes yeah and they'll do like one per store thank yous which mm-hmm. 
usually go up on eBay because why wouldn't they? Yeah. Uh, you know, I have people who are like, hey, I want that. Give me five bucks for it. It's like, yeah, you can go on eBay <laughs> for, for much more than that. Thank you, buddy. I yeah. Speaking of every type of promotion, action figures were a big deal at this time for Todd McFarlane and the Todd the Bum action figure of Todd McFarlane's character from the live action Spawn movie is announced as a Diamond Distributors exclusive and the McFarlane Toy Collectors Club is doing their own exclusive with a retooled Tiffany figure that looks more like her comic book design. Now, Tiffany is also being featured featured with Spawn on a $12 mouse pad that is said to be available in computer stores everywhere. Oh, the your, your local Circuit City is going to have it in stock, guys. <laughs> Radio Jack, boys. So, Mike, before I go into the, I, I had actually a question I was thinking about. You know, as a comic book retailer, my question to you is, do people still come in p- for the books or do they go in for collectibles or action figures or trades, wall books? Like, what are the draw for people coming in more and more? People come in generally because it's Kevin's store. Right. And everybody comes in for something different. Like they'll be like, I want to buy something from here. I want to buy something Kevin centric or I want to buy something comic centric. My boyfriend really loves Tiffany from Spawn. So I'm looking for that action figure. Do you happen to have the, you know, super deluxe diamond sculpt? You're about 23 years too late, lady. Because like you guys had that cool wall book section by the by the registers yeah. and everything. And like when I was there with my buddy Pete, he was like, he like gravitated. He's like, I want that book. And he, and he, you know, bought, you know, right off the wall. And, you know, I, I am like a issue guy. I like to look at action figures. I'm not always a wall book kind of person, but it's just funny when you watch how people kind of mosey around the store and look at different things. And, and they are going there to look at sort of like the, the walrus and they're looking for, you know, the other different little statues in the shop. I digress. In Jim Lee news, Wildcats number 50 will feature a wraparound cover by Lee, who will also be drawing a few interior pages along with Travis Sherris. Wizard also gives readers a look at Jim Lee's new collectible card game, C23, which is comprised of 162 cards total, some of which will feature art by Jim Lee. The card game thing is funny. I mean, like the trading cards were huge and there's so many different superhero cards and stuff like that. It was big for a while. So a lot of smaller stores who don't have the draw of Kevin Smith, like they subsist on selling magic and Pokemon and all that. How big a chunk is that of your retail at this point? Zero. Really? You guys don't offer Pokemon. I I don't do cards at all. The only cards I do are Kevin cards. It's a sub genre that I know nothing about. And during my entire tenure at the stash, we never did it. We could have, but it's a rabbit hole. I I know some shops that do it and it's just like they they can't keep up and like people they'll they'll rip open the, the little cellophane packer there they go nuts and just it's it seems like too much i feel like there's a place for that separate from comics and stuff like that as well yeah it's called the loony bin and that's where i said <laughs> yes it is. it is i would agree that's where they'll send you for sure all right well close it out here it's reported that wildstorm previewed a line of gen 13 action figures at toy fair 98 which included fairchild grunge freefall and the villain threshold now it seems like these were likely meant to be released along with the ill-fated animated movie. Fortunately for Gen 13 fans, only a Fairchild figure is ever released in this scale. Eventually 
actually they do some dolls of some of the other characters. It was a Toy Fair magazine exclusive, and it was later a comic book just kind of retailer release, like in the stores. Now, additionally, a grudge from Gen 13 statue sculpted by J. Scott Campbell is spotlighted in the junk drawer section of this issue, which is kind of the last thing he did for Gen 13 at that time. You know, like he was already off the book by that point. Uh, but not only that, Wildstorm had licensed its characters from Gen 13, Divide Right, Desperados, and then the homage comics like Astro City, and I think Monkey Man and O'Brien was over there at that point. For the Jones Soda Company, they had custom labels on their bottles for their crazy sodas of Wildstorm characters. You could special order them at 36 bucks for 24 bottles. This is like, nowadays, like you can usually find them in Target or whatever, but back then, like they were super niche. I can't believe, like, I, I would have loved to have found some of those, but I don't, I don't think my local store ordered a case, you know? <laughs> but here's the thing, Mike. Since the beginning of the podcast, we've been tallying how many times Jim Lee and Todd McFarlane have been mentioned in the magazine. So after 82 issues... In this issue, the tally is Jim Lee, six mentions, Todd McFarlane, six mentions. They're tied up. But that brings our running total to Jim Lee, 485 mentions, Todd McFarlane, 454. Wow. I mean, for, the, for the record, I don't do the counting. Adam does the counting. <laughs> I don't, I don't have the patience Adam. or wherewithal to do that. No way. Yeah. <laughs> so, but yeah, so that's, uh, we're, we're still waiting to see by the end of the run, will they fight Todd McFarlane on top or Jim Lee? Time will tell. Time will tell. So to close out, we're going to take you into Turok's top 10. And I'm going to do this one by myself because this, yeah, go for this it. is the top 10 comic characters who sound like porn stars. This feels Number like a conversation that would be in a Kevin Smith movie. Number 10, The Punisher. <laughs> Number nine, Mr. Fantastic. Number eight, Moon Boy. Don't Number think about seven. that one too much. <laughs> Number seven, Iron Fist. Oh, come on. <laughs> Number six, elongated man. It's getting worse. Number five, our man. What, what our man? I want to know about. Is that like tantric? Is that sting doing his? I, th I think it's just power? you know stamina, man. Um, <laughs> number four, Black Goliath. I feel like the Hulk should be on this list for some yeah. reason. <laughs> number three, the in betweener. Wow. I didn't know that was a character. Yeah. Number two, Wood God. <laughs> and number one, Angar the Screamer. <laughs> anybody, where is Angar the Screamer from? I've never heard that character oh, either. Angar the Screamer. Yeah, unfortunately, I have. He, <laughs> he actually made his debut in Daredevil. So, yeah. wow. <laughs> oh boy. But there That's we crazy. go, man. Uh, so, Mike, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much Dude. for joining us. And Thank you so much for having me, guys. It's been an absolute thrill for me, and I'm truly grateful that you agreed to be on the show with us, and it's fantastic. Like, Mr. Like, fantastic. <laughs> I got you. Uh, so, Mike, can you tell us a little bit where they can find you, or they can, you know, check out the store and all that kind of stuff? Oh, hell no. I don't want them coming after oh, <laughs> The my heat God. is coming. The heat is coming. Yeah, I've got all these guys who hate Kyle Rayner coming after me. <laughs> uh, you can actually follow me on my socials. It's at 
Michael Zapsic, M-I-C-H-A-E-L-Z-A-P-C-I-C on Twitter, Instagram. Is it Twitter still? Is it X? X, I don't know. Whatever. You can also check out our stuff on this Jay and Silent Bob Secret Stash. Hey, listen, folks, if you don't have a local comic store anymore... Let us be your local comic store because we do a reservist. Program. You guys ship too? We ship in the contiguous United States. Very and cool. We are unable to do Alaska and Hawaii or overseas now, Canada and Mexico. No bueno. But, you know, if, if you're in the lower 48, folks, we can be your local comic store. Just go to thesecretstashonline.com. I also wanted to mention, you know, the day I was there, the next day you were doing a charitable event for, for cancer or something like that. You do a lot yeah. of charity events through the store as well, which is kind of yeah, very we cool. we do a lot of events. And on, as a matter of fact, next week, Kevin is auctioning off a lot of his original comic book art collection. Wow. If you ever wanted to own one of Kevin Smith's Green Arrow covers painted by Matt Wagner... Those are up for auction. Kevin's got a really extensive Preacher and Batman and Hitman original art, original pencil. Wow. Got some Daredevil pieces up there. He's got a Frank Miller Daredevil piece, which is pretty damn awesome. Some of the proceeds for that is going to the Kubert School, the Joe Kubert School in yeah. oh, Dillard, cool. Jersey. Yeah, we're sponsoring some scholarships. That's awesome. We like to be community centric. And the town of Red Bank is very much like that. It's a nice community. And like, Adam, have you ever been to Red Bank, New Jersey? It's it's a beautiful town. It's got a place you'd love called Yester Caves. There's just this old arc. Oh, it's a, an amazing place. Someday, if you come out to the East Coast here, with me, I'll take you over there. We'll go check out the shop and everything because it's a really nice town. Great restaurants and shops. And, you know, it's very family friendly, too. It's a cool place. Adam, you, now you have a destination. There Any, you go. Absolutely. So, some about. go to Disney. We go to Red Bank. Exactly. <laughs> go to next door neighbors. That's pop free collectibles. They sell yes, toys. that's a cool place. And, uh, too. Sports memorabilia there. So yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah. Excellent. But yeah, just thanks again, Mike. This yes, is- thank you. Oh, it, was, it, was, it was a pleasure. Really, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Honored to be on. Well, hey, Michael, that was fun, right? Dude, that was amazing. I mean, he's such a cool dude. I mean, so chill, so nice to talk to. And it was it was really a, a kind of a thrill for me because like, like I said, I, I literally did watch every single episode of Comic Book Men. Um, I was obsessed with that show when it was on and such a genuinely nice guy. And it was just a real random occurrence where I was went to the store just because we Pete and I were killing time and started talking. I was like, hey, we talked about Wizard. He's like, oh, you're the Wizard podcast? I was like, yeah, yeah, we are. He's like, oh, let's do a crossover. And I was like, let's do it. And he did not disappoint. He was fantastic. Yeah, well, that's great. Well, hey, we want to chat with all of you out there. That's for sure. We want to have a conversation with you on social media so you know where to find us. We are at Wizards Comics on X. We are on Wizards underscore comics on Instagram. We are on Blue Sky at Wizards Comics. If you've got an invitation and you're over there of course we're on facebook at wizards the podcast guide to comics don't forget to subscribe to the youtube channel uh, because we have totally different content over there it's not just reposts of the podcast it's all unique uh, but it is wizard and 90s comics related so there's a lot of fun stuff to be had over there check us out on all of our socials follow us you can find us wherever podcasts are downloaded spotify and podbean and all that great stuff so thank you so much for listening to this episode this is the first time you're joining us because Mike Zapsick was on the show. That's thank you for coming. And we've got 
what 300 episodes they could check out you know to go backwards in time which is pretty cool so yeah but don't forget to check out patreon.com forward slash wizards comics why well in addition to the show uh you get an uncut version of the show which means there's lots of other side conversations things we're having that we maybe not always 100 on topic so you get extra there plus you're getting a scan of the issue to read along with us you get our 90 super cinema series but also we have a lot of fun things going on on patreon on right now guys in fact michael and, and i are getting ready to record the blade a 90 super cinema episode michael you've been looking forward to that one right it's a fantastic movie and i can't wait to re-watch it and talk about it and have a good time and we have a really great time the three of us kind of joking around and it's a very loose conversation we just have a lot of fun and it's really cool as well as our patreon chat where michael and i just talk about whatever's on our mind in the world of comics and get behind the scenes updates about what's coming up on the show as well five bucks a month you get so much more than you bargained for and it's continuing to grow every week thank you so much to all our patrons we know who you are but the rest of the world deserves to know who is supporting wizards the podcast guide to comics we have marway welcome bruno cavalcante david m dalibor js evan bryant Gary Hutcherson, Fernando Pinto, Jeremy Daw, Greg Schuler, Meltface Killa, Brian Acosta, Steve King, Dead of Jedi, Mitchell Hall, Lee Markowitz, Stephen Forshaw, Mickey and Jason at the Retro Network, and Numero Uno, Mark McDonald. Again, thank you, especially our longtime patrons. And for those of you who have just joined us, it really means a lot that you're supporting the podcast. That does it, though, for this episode. So, Michael, until next time. Keep your books bagged and boarded. Oh! Booyah! You gotta have you say it every once in a while, you know? This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.